We live in an age where everything needs to be fast, easy, and in high volume. I've seen people say, I'm going to write eight books this year. Josh Burnoff, today's guest, thinks that's a load of crap. See, if you want to write a good book, just like anything of quality, you need to spend time on it. And Josh knows he's a best-selling author or ghostwriter of eight business books, and he's contributed to 50 book projects that have generated over $20 million for authors. Josh's new book, Build a Better Business Book, is a masterclass in how to do just that. And today, he's giving us the best parts of that book. In the pro show, things get real as we talk more about the charlatans of writing as well as ghostwriting. But for now, look for these top takeaways. To write a good book, your idea has to be big, right, and new. This will make it distinguishable from everything else and increase your impact and influence. Number two, a good business book consists of two things, answers to your reader's questions and case studies. Your book is nothing if you don't have case studies to back up your claims. And number three, are you a planner or a pantser? Pantsers write by the seat of their pants, which creates long, rambling, incoherent manuscripts. Planners start with what Josh calls a fat outline, so they know the story they're telling before they ever put pen to page. This is one of my favorite interviews to date, and I know you're going to love it too. If you want to get the entire episode ads-free, you can sign up over at casabona.org join, and you can find a link to Josh's book and everything we talk about over at howibuilt.it slash three two one. But for now, let's get to the intro and then the interview. Hey, everybody, and welcome to How I Built It, the podcast where you get free coaching calls from successful creators. Each week, you get actionable advice on how you can build a better content business to increase revenue and establish yourself as an authority. I'm your host, Joe Casabona. Now let's get to it. All right. I am here with Josh Burnoff, a best-selling author or ghostwriter of eight business books. That is a lot of, that's like James Patterson level books, I think. Josh, how are you? I'm doing great. It's good to be here. I am so excited to talk to you today because writing a book has been top of mind for me, right? We were talking in the pre-show about how I've written five books. They were all pretty technical books. Lots of programming. I would tell people they're page turners because most people will just turn the pages until they get to the end of it. But this is a great topic because books are a great way to establish authority. So the first question I want to ask you is about this adage I've been hearing a lot. They say a book is the new business card. What do you think about that sentiment? That's total crap. <laughs> <laughs> Honest to God, a, a book is, first of all, it's, if your book is going to be any good, then it's going to be a lot of work to create. Refining the idea is a lot of work. Writing it is a lot of work. Promoting it is research, all of that. And if you put all of that effort in and then all it is is a business card, that's a hugely expensive and difficult business card that you've just created. Of course, you can very rapidly and easily now create a book and put it out there even though the quality is crap. And then you're basically, your your book business card says, I am a loser that doesn't put any effort into anything. And so, yes, if, if that's really what you want to communicate, go for it. <laughs> 
Oh man, I first of all, I love that we're starting out at this level. But you're right. Like there are people who are like, oh, you can just publish a book by taking blog posts and putting them together. And I'm like, how though? Like how would you, unless you started writing your blog like it's your book, right? You can't just take like 15 blog posts and and put binding on them and say, here, I have a book. It's interesting that you raise it that way. Both of the two books that I published most recently were produced, well, they were sort of debuted as blog posts. But when I was writing those blog posts, I had an idea of how everything was going to fit together. So that was more like drafting things in public than it was like, oh, look, here's a bunch of blog posts. I'll just dump it all into a bin and call it a book. Yeah, I think that's like the core difference, right? Is that like writing in public, building in public is one thing. And then like retroactively saying like, oh man, like I've had my blog since like 2001 mm-hmm. or 2003 maybe. And I can't just today be like, oh man, I've got 20 years of blog posts. I'm just going to pick my favorites and, you know, the Chronicles of Joe Casabona and make it a book, right? Those first like, I don't know, 100 blog posts were awful. I was a teenager and they were bad, really bad. Okay, I'm going to name two people who can get away with what you just said. Okay. Okay, one is Guy Kawasaki. He did that. And the other is Seth Godin. Now, if you think you're as good as Guy Kawasaki and (laughs) Seth Godin as a writer, go for it. But, you know, the other 99.99% of bloggers don't really have what it takes to do that. Yes, this is exactly what I say to podcasters who are like, well, I don't edit my podcast. People like hearing the raw interview, right? That's what Joe Rogan does. And I'm like, yeah, Joe Rogan has like 11 million downloads per episode. So if you if you think you can be Joe Rogan, then by all means, but most of us have to actually edit our work. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I love that. So if that's the case, right? If you need to go into a book with a story, in mind, right? With some overarching cohesive message. And you can't just put together the stuff you've written and and hope for the best, like it's some kind of serial killer's letter with magazine clippings. Why should founders write books? Well, it's about making an impact and creating influence. So I like to talk about the things that distinguish an idea. And this can be either an idea for a new organization, an entrepreneurial idea, or an idea for a book, it has to have three things. It has to be big, that is, have an impact on a large number of people. It has to be right, that is, you have some sort of evidence that shows that your new insight is different from what people have seen. And it has to be new, right? It has to be differentiated. You don't want to be the 11th person that came up with this idea. You want to have your own spin on it. So that big, new, and right, that is the kind of thing that tends to define an entrepreneurial idea. It's also the kind of thing that helps to define a book. And if you produce a book that says, you know, here's the problem that people have. Here's my idea about how the world's going to be different and how to change things. And here's how to implement it. You have created a powerful argument that you have insights that nobody else has. And presumably that translates into you have a corporation or an entrepreneurial venture or whatever that deserves to be successful in the world. That's great. I'm going to repeat this, right? Big, right, and new. This is like, I don't actually think I've ever said his name out loud. Atul Gwandi, Gwandi, Mm -hmm. the writer of the Checklist Manifesto, right? Mm -hmm. This book on Amazon, it's saying 2011. I can't imagine that's the earliest published date though. (laughs) This book has seemingly been around forever. 
cited by lots of people. But now it's like, if somebody put out a book today that's like, oh yeah, you need to make checklists. Like, yeah, that's not, obviously I need to make checklists, right? Like that's not a new, that's not a new idea. Well, it's it's interesting. There are a lot of ways to be new. You could write a book called The Checklist Manifesto for Financial Services. Mm, yeah. Or The Checklist Manifesto for Gen Z, right? Mm, yes. So, or, you know, here are 29 worksheets that will allow you to implement the checklist. So just because, you know, let's just say content marketing as an example. There are, there are thousands of books on content marketing, but if you're focused on, let's say, TikTok, maybe you have insights that nobody else has. That is all ways that you can differentiate. There are all ways that you can be new. You don't have to basically say, okay, I, you know, I've invented something nobody's ever seen before called artificial intelligence, and that's completely new. <laughs> yeah, this is great. I'm really glad you said that, right? Because I think this is something that people kind of get in their own head about, right? And they, they do this with blog posts too, right? Like I remember in the early, mid-2000s, people would be like, why should I blog about this when whomever, right? When Seth Godin has already blogged about this. Well, like, I mean, you're not Seth Godin, but also you're not Seth Godin, right? You have different lived experiences. Yeah. Seth Godin has a huge audience. Maybe you could talk about it from the, the point of like a brand new audience or whatever. You know, I faced this when I was looking at this book I just wrote called Build a Better Business Book. It's not as if nobody's ever written a book about how to write a business book before. But there were two things that I thought would distinguish it. First of all, most of it is about, that's out there is about writing. And I wanted to talk about publication models and ghostwriting and mm. uh, how to do research and, you know, how to structure the book and how to promote it and what happens after it, it goes to the publisher and all of the stuff that nobody talks about. And I also wanted to get an idea that I don't think people understand, which is that business books are stories. And unless you write as a story, and you write with a lot of case study stories in there, it doesn't hang together, it's boring, and it's not really a good book. Yeah, that's that's a really great point, right? And I mean, like, you know, we've, again, we've kind of heard that from the, Don Miller talks about the hero's journey, which of course was cited by George Lucas, which of course was not invented by George Lucas. But like putting it in the context of, writing a business book, I think is really important because you're not just brain dumping, right? As we record this, I literally wrote that this morning, right? That stories are so important. My dad would always ask me when I was a kid, how can I remember every line to every movie I've ever seen? And I can't remember what I learned in math class earlier that day. And I'm like, there are no stories in math class, right? Like math class is boring. And the movie I watched was a compelling story. And so I remember it better. Well, since I was trained as a mathematician, <laughs> I just think that your math teachers didn't tell you the stories of the math problems the way that they should have. <laughs> Once there was a variable that no one knew who it was, and then the mystery was revealed, you know? And, and I will caveat that I was very bad. At, I think I might be the only person with a software engineering degree that is bad at math. That's a story for another time. So let's talk about, like, before we get into how do we find our book topic, how do we make a business book a story, right? Because I think this is like, again, my sciencey web developer brain, my programmer brain is like, just present the facts, right? Like mm -hmm. business book, I've, I've said like business books could be 25% of what they actually are if you just had the facts in there, right? But, mm, but no one would read them. No one so, would read them, yeah. Okay, so how to make a business book a story. I'm going to talk about the beginning, the middle, and the end, right? Because that's what stories have. Yeah. 
the beginning of a business book is what I call the scare the crap out of you chapter. <laughs> chapter one is always a scare the crap out of you chapter. And there are two ways to scare the crap out of people, and they are called fear and greed. Okay, so fear is if you don't do what it says in this book, something bad will happen. So, for example, a cybersecurity might, book might be, you know, if you don't prepare your company for potential data breaches, something terrible will happen. You're like, oh, man, I better read the rest of this book. Greed is you can make more money or be more successful if you read this. So it's like, oh, well, you could triple your productivity if you organize things this way, and then you'll be able to get more done. You're like, oh, yeah, that sounds profitable. Yeah. Okay, so you can have both fear and greed in the first chapter. In that chapter, you describe the solution as well, but in a very brief way. So people are like, oh, yeah, well, that sounds good, but you're going to have to prove to me that that actually works. So typically what comes after that is a chapter or two that describes the solution in some more detail, and then you explore the elements of that. And one way to make sure that this hangs together as a story is to use what I call the reader question method, and that is each chapter should answer a question. So maybe the first question is, are cybersecurity breaches a big deal? And then the second chapter of the question is, how big of a problem is this? And then the third one might be, what are the strategies I can use to prepare my company? And then fourth is, how do I convince my management this is important? And if you look at the sequence of those questions, it's like a natural conversation that takes people through to the end. I write in my book about a woman who wrote a terrific book, her name is uh, Fotini Iconomopoulos, a book about negotiation. It's called Say Less, Get More. It mm. turned out to be a best-selling book. But she would sit and like cry tears of pain while she was attempting to write it because it's like, how do I write this chapter? What and, and once she found out about this reader question method, you know, her blurb from my book said, oh my gosh, you could have saved me so much trouble if I'd only <laughs> known about that ahead of time. Then basically writing the chapters is answering the questions. Now that's not so simple, but that's that's the basic idea of how the book becomes a story and how each chapter sort of fits into that story. Awesome. Okay, so we've got the beginning fear and greed, and then we've got describe the solution in more detail yeah. by answering each question. How do we put a nice bow on this book? Is there like a call to action, right? If if you do like, again, not to dump on Don Miller, I've read all of his books, mm -hmm. but you know, like some of them were like pretty heavy handed in the, hey, buy my workshop, right? Hire one of my people, <laughs> right? Like, how do we put a bow on this? Okay, so a couple of things. First of all, you need to understand what the ingredients of a business book are. And they are case study stories, which is really important, descriptions of people who had the problem and how they dealt with it. Then there are ideas and frameworks, what I call argumentation and proof points, which is like proof that you're right. Then there is additional research. And finally, there's advice. So every chapter should have some advice about what you need to do. And the taken as a whole, the book is an advice book. It's like, these are the things you need to do. Now, it's very tempting to say, well, I'm going to hold this stuff back. And if you really want my help, then you need to call me and pay me money. But people really hate that. They really don't like the idea that they bought a book and that the end result of that book is just, it's a big brochure and attempting mm -hmm. to, to get you to sign up. Right. So it's a little more subtle. It's really content marketing. 
if somebody reads my book at the end, 98% of them are going to be saying, oh, well, now I know how to write a business book. And the other 2% are going to say, oh, I need to write a book proposal that will sell to a publisher. Maybe this guy Burnoff can help me. And even though the book doesn't make a big deal about that, they know they can get a hold of me. And every other book is business book is like that. In the end, there's a subtle message. You can hire this person to give a speech. You can hire this person as a consultant. You can buy these people's product. It tends to pay off because thought leadership in general pays off that you're like, I want to talk to this person because they are the expert. Thought leadership in general pays off. This is great because you're right. Like the books where it was very heavy handed and like, hey, read this book and then hire me. I was like, well, you guys just kind of sound desperate, right? Like you, you did you write this book as lead gen, right? Like you, like you could you could buy like Google ads or Facebook ads if you want to direct sell to people. But what you said, if people will read my book and 98% will say, great, I can write a book, 2% will say, I need help, right? I think another thing that people think is that, oh yes, the book is the first step and most people will then go into my funnel and want to hire me. But people who are reading the books, right? A lot of them are DIY. And for the ones who aren't, they were maybe hoping to be DIY and then realize that they want an accelerant. Yeah, I think if you have elevated the capabilities of a large number of people, if your book has made thousands of people more productive, it'll pay off. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, when Seth Godin writes a marketing book, he's not saying, oh, hire me. No, it's like, no, this is, I want people to be smarter. And to think about a book like uh, Blitzscaling, that's uh, Reed Hoffman's book on, on growing companies. It's not intended to generate leads. It's intended to generate influence. It's intended to make him the authority Mm -hmm. on what it takes to scale companies up. And of course, that results in all sorts of benefits of investments or or his ability to influence legislation or who knows what. Right. So if you are the acknowledged expert in a field, then the benefits come to you. And that really is what the book is helping to accomplish. And along the way, you're helping thousands of people. If you're generous with your advice in the book, then then it will eventually pay off for you. If you're greedy, it won't. Yes. Yes. Love this. Listeners, remember that part. Because this is what I say all the time. Like, what should I make my free content on? Literally everything you know. Like, just tell people what you know. People want to know how. And then if they want it done for them or if they want a bespoke solution, then they'll hire you, right? Look at like James Clear, right? It's not like he's, it's not like, he has in his book, hey, if you want to form better habits, like hire me, I'll be your habit coach, right? If you're successful at his level, you actually can make millions of dollars from from book sales, but that's unusual. Right, right. I have to say, you know, that for most people, the question is, can you reach the 5,000, 10,000 people that really need to hear your message? And you can be vastly successful with a book that sells 3,000 copies if those are exactly the right 3,000 people for you to influence. Man, this is, I think, something a lot of people need to hear, right? Because you do hear New York Times bestseller, right? Or award-winning, right? I'm, I was talking to somebody who's like, oh, my book is award-winning. And I'm like, did you buy that award? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they did. This is great. Can you reach the five to 10,000 people who, who need to hear your message? How do we find our book topic, right? I've got like 
14 ideas in my head, right? Mm-hmm. From how to start a podcast to how to improve your podcast processes, right? And we have your framework from earlier, right? It needs to be big. It needs to be right. It needs to be new. How do we find a topic that's big and right and new? I'd say there there's sort of two ways to do that. One is an ongoing process where your work with clients generally informs that. Every time you do work, you learn something. A memoir, I just just edited a memoir. Oh, now I know something about a form of writing that I didn't know before, mm-hmm. right? Or if, if it's somebody else, they might be like, oh, here's a coding project that involves artificial intelligence. Oh, I just learned something about how to use AI in coding. And that collection of knowledge is what everyone assembles. Now the question is, how does that cohere? And that gets to basically, what do you know that nobody else knows? That's the new part of the big right and new. Uh, One of the things I do with authors is an idea development session where they're like, oh, I want to write a book about this. It's typically me and them and then a third person who was like a stand-in for the audience, a trusted friend or whatever. And I will often hear their description and I'm like, that sounds boring. (laughs) Or I think I heard that before. Isn't that what somebody else said? Or the other side of it is, oh, I never heard somebody use that word to describe this. Or that analogy is new. And so I keep sort of pushing against the boring, same old stuff and going more in the direction of things that are unique and interesting. And at the end of that process, you end up with a differentiated statement that nobody else can make. And that becomes the title of the book and it becomes the sort of North Star for where the book is going. Gotcha. I love that. Push against boring, same old, move towards new and interesting. I just feel like this question of idea development, developing Mm -hmm. an idea, it's hugely important and nobody even thinks of it as a thing. But that's unless you spend time developing your idea, it will be either disconnected. Hey there, I want to tell you about Sensei. Sensei is the original solution for creating and selling online courses with WordPress, and it's back and better than ever. As a course creator with Sensei, you get complete ownership over your content and the freedom to customize as much as you need. Sensei has vastly improved the course creation experience, adding a customizable distraction-free mode, video and lesson progression, powerful reporting, and a full set of interactive content blocks. And those blocks, like flashcards, image hotspots, and interactive videos, can be added to any page or post, not just the courses. The goal of Sensei is to make it effortless for course creators to develop personalized instruction for learners. And while Sensei is free to start, you can save 20% on Sensei Pro, allowing you to charge for courses, drip out content, manage groups and cohorts, and leverage new AI tools. Just go to howibuilt.it slash sensei to have the discount automatically applied. That's howibuilt.it slash S-E-N-S-E-I. Let's talk about customer reviews for a second. Are you properly leveraging them for your business? Customer reviews are pure gold. People are willingly telling you what they like, don't like, and want. I don't know about you, but I've spent a lot of time reading through my own reviews and my competitors' reviews to gain new insights. To be honest, it's 
sort of like drinking from a fire hose. That's why I love GapScout.com. GapScout simplifies this entire process by using AI to consolidate and analyze customer reviews across the internet. And not just your reviews, but the reviews of every business in your market. You'll gain insight into how customers in your market feel about your business compared to your competitors, where there are gaps, and the biggest opportunities to win more customers. GapScout continually monitors customer opinions and reports on the changes so that you can beat the competition and stay ahead of market trends. Getting started is easy. Go to GapScout.com to learn more. And be sure to join the mailing list to get the latest news. That's GapScout.com. We're too much the same as everything else out there. I'll be honest with you, right? I feel like at this point, my business is struggling a little bit. And I think part of it is because I focused so much on short form content over the last year, Mm -hmm. right? And so like I would just tweet or post on LinkedIn like the first ideas that came to my mind, right? That doesn't take any work. Sure, maybe like I had a conversation with somebody and they were like, should you pay guests to come on your show? And I'm like, all right, I have some thoughts about that. But now I'm at that the beginning of a news cycle where my newsletter is gaining traction and more people are coming to me because I'm writing, I just wrote a 3000 word blog post on how somebody publishes their podcast and what you can learn from it. And now people are like, oh, can you show me how to do that? I can save 10 hours a month or 20 hours a month with automation for podcasts. Like, tell me more about that, right? And I wish I had thought about what you just said sooner, right? Because I think people want to start just like hit publish, hit tweet as soon as possible without really thinking about how it's going to affect the perception that people have of them. You need to have conversations with other humans in your space and outside who don't believe everything that you say. So that pushback, it's like, I don't get it. I'm going to tell you a technique that I used at Forrester Research where I was an analyst for 20 years that anybody can do to help somebody with an idea. It's called the three huzz. It works like this. The per- you say, what's your idea? And then the person describes it. And then you say, I don't understand it. What are you trying to get at? And then they get a little upset. And they're like, no, 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 it's like this. And then you're like, no, I'm still just not understanding what you're needing. And then they get really upset. And they're like, no, it's this and this and this. And then you're like, ah, Okay. Now we have crystallized your idea because just by saying ha to you three times, I finally got you to the point where you could describe it in a sentence in a way that you're really excited about. Okay, now we have something we can work from. Oh, that's great. I went to the University of Scranton, a Jesuit institution, and they made us take philosophy classes. And we were really big on Socrates in my first philosophy class. And what you're saying here, as well as like, the chapter should be questions that the customer asks uh, or the reader asks or whatever. Reminds me very much of like the Socratic method, right? Well, why is that? But why do you think that, right? And he would back people into a corner, but you're helping them kind of come out of the corner and be like, oh yes, this is actually my thought. Yeah. The amazing thing about that technique is that all of the insight comes from the other person. All I did was sit there and say, huh, I don't get it. And yet, that gets them to be as clear as they need to be. Yeah, I had a very, so I have two similar experiences actually with my friend Jay Klaus, 
who at one point during a conversation we were having was like, I don't really understand what I can recommend you do to people. Like, you know, we have this person there, the whatever guy, and this person's the virtual events guy. What are you the guy for? And I'm like, oh, podcasting and automation. And it just kind of like came out that way. And I'm like, oh, I never included the automation part. I just included the podcasting part. And like those people are a dime a dozen. And then what you said over here, you need to have conversations with other people who don't believe everything you say. Uh, my friend Justin Moore just gave a talk recently at Craft and Commerce where he said something very similar, right? He's like, find the places where people disagree with you and dig in on that sort of stuff to find your niche is what he's saying. Yep. Ah, oh, this is great. Okay, so ongoing process, you work with clients. This is, I think, another thing. Like, you can't just do something once and then say you're an expert in it, right? Like, I've had people, like, launch successful WordPress plugins or whatever, and then they're like, yes, I know exactly how to build a WordPress plugin business now. I'm a coach. I'm going to write a book. And like, oh, well, you did it once. Like, you could have gotten lucky, right? Collect knowledge and then have conversations with other people who don't believe everything you say. This is great. Let's say we have our idea now. It is big. It is new. Right. How do we start writing? I think this is another thing that I think a lot of people struggle with. I have a, someone, we were talking in the pre-show, right? Like I write a lot every day. Words generally come easy to me. My first draft always sucks, but like whose doesn't? But I have an easier time getting words on the page than a lot of people. Tell me about your writing process. Okay. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you about writing in general because people get very confused about it. I once had an author, someone who's, who writes fantastic stuff. She posted in this author's group I was in and she said, I don't know what to do now. I'm 75,000 words into my 60,000 word book. <laughs> <laughs> and and her frustration is almost universal because people write and write and write and write. And then they're like, oh my God, what am I going to do with all this stuff? Yeah. It's repetitive. It's got holes in it. It doesn't hang together. That is in general the wrong way to do things. So in fiction writing, there is a distinction between two groups of people, two types of writers, planners and pantsers. Planners are people who know exactly what they're doing. It's all plotted out. And then they go forward based on that. And the pantsers write by the seat of their pants. You cannot be a successful business author if you're a pantser unless you enjoy pain because that's <laughs> a very painful way to do it. So I'm going to tell you the right way to do these things. First of all, it's very hard. You're like, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to start by writing. Wrong, wrong, stop. You're going to start by researching. The biggest problem people have when they're writing is not enough case studies, not enough stories. So the first thing you need to be doing is going out and saying, where am I going to get a case study about a person who did this? It could be a client of yours. It could be a colleague. You could Somebody else could tell you a story about it. You might read about somebody and, and follow up with them. But we need these human stories to make it hang together. And then you have the rest of the research. You know, How am I going to prove that this is the case? What are the five ways that people do this thing? And you remember what I said about the reader question method. If you're going to write a chapter, you want to say, all right, I'm going to assemble the case studies and the research that applies to this particular question. You know, how do I prepare for a cyber attack? Or what are the three main tools that I need to use to automate my podcast business or whatever it happens to be? Yeah. But we haven't written anything yet. We just collected a whole bunch of this research. So the next step, crucial step, which avoids writer's block, 
is to create what I call a fat outline. So in a fat outline, what you do is you assemble these bits and pieces in order. You open up a document, and then you start dumping this stuff in here and rearranging it. Not the whole thing, but like, you know, two sentences that represent a case study, you know, uh, the beginning of a quote that's from a person that you trust, that kind of thing. And you assemble this stuff until it holds together as a story. And notice that doesn't tap into writer's block because moving bullets around is not stressful. Okay, now, because you're a planner, not a pantser, now you have everything all arranged. Okay, now it's time to write. You sit down to write and you're like, oh, okay, this comes first. I need to write the case study story. Type, 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 type. Oh, wow, I just wrote a thousand words. Okay, now I need to talk about the idea. Well, I know what elements go into that because that's right there in my fat outline. Type, 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 type. Whoa, I just wrote 700 words about the idea. Okay, now I need to prove that it's true. Well, I have like nine pieces of research to back it up. I have them already know what range they're in. Type, 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 type. Okay, now I have the justification. So that process is much less wasteful and much less stressful. And you're not going to end up 75,000 words into a 60,000-word book. If you do that, you're going to start on Monday saying, I need to write chapter seven. and you're going to end on Friday saying, oh, I have chapter seven written. Then you string them all together, add it in, and you got a book. (laughs) Yeah. This is very illuminating for me because I always start with an outline. Like this is like the one thing I learned in high school. Not the one thing that makes my high school experience sound terrible, but this is one of the big things from high school that I use every single day. But I'm going to tell you the outlines they taught you to use in school are far less useful. Because anyone can list this, a sequence of, of titles in order. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And then when you go to write, you're like, oh, man, I got to fill this in. The difference between that and a fat outline is the fat outline has got actual, it's got graphics, it's got quotes, yeah. it's got actual content in it. It's sloppy. Right. It's not as nice and neat with A1, you know, little right. A kind of thing. But it is much better when it time comes to actually write the thing. Yeah, for sure. Right. And that that's such great advice. Someplace I like to start with the previous books I've written, which I mean, you can easily turn this into a fat outline, right? Is a mind map. I always like to just like put all of the things I'm thinking about on this graphical representation, right? Yes. That's one way to organize the content. And it's fun. Some people like to draw pictures. Mm-hmm. Some people like to just dump text into a file. Some people you know, go into a whiteboard and, you know, scrabble around. But somehow you got to organize the stuff. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the pre-show you tease, like you can probably tell me why I can write a lot. Based on what you've just told me here, one of my favorite things to talk about is idea capture, right? I make it super easy to add an idea, like not just the title, right? But like what I'm thinking into a notes app. And whenever I sit down to write, this is the first place I look. Like, oh, what, what was that idea I had on my walk yesterday? There's this thing called flow. It's a concept that was first described by the psychologist Mihai, Six Cent Mihai, about that when you're working and there's resistance, but you know what you're doing and everything sort of seems to come together and you get to the end and you're like, oh my gosh, I just wrote 3,000 words in an hour. I was so productive. That's flow. And the thing about writing in flow is that not only does it feel great, but it the writing itself tends to be excellent because you were in that state when you were writing it. 
And the necessity to do that is to get all the preparation work out of the way ahead of time so you can focus on nothing but writing. Whereas if you go and write without having done that, then you end up like Fotini in, in her coffee shop tearing her hair out because she's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing here. Yeah. And it's obvious, right? Like I've done that before. I've written like out of flow and it just seems like a bunch of disjointed ideas on a page. And I'm like, this is not good. It's one way to get where you need to go. It's right. not the most enjoyable way. Right, right. <laughs> if you'll, you know, write a sentence, check Twitter, write a sentence, check LinkedIn. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, you know, I've ghostwritten books and some that's sort of like trying on somebody else's clothes. Mm. <laughs> and yes, that's some of the hardest writing I ever did because I'm writing in somebody else's voice. And if I don't feel it, it's like, oh God, this is so painful yeah. to assemble this stuff. It doesn't come from that sort of, I've done the research, I've assembled everything in it, and I believe in what I'm doing. Yeah, that's so great. I would love to talk more about that in the pro show, yeah. if that sounds good to you, about like ghostwriting in that process. Great. Awesome. If you want to hear that conversation ad-free, as well as every episode extended, you can sign up over at howibuilt.it slash pro. It starts at just five bucks a month, and uh, you'll hear this great conversation. It's very interesting to me, because I know like, Lots of authors, including James Patterson, has a few ghostwriters. I, as an aside, I've mentioned James Patterson twice. I took his master class because I don't really, I wasn't a fan, uh, and that that I like to consume content from people I don't like to try to change my mind. He changed my mind. I mean, it was like, you know, his process was very interesting to me. But he puts out like fourteen books a year. I'm like nobody can do that. So anyway, we'll talk about ghostwriting in the pro show. The last thing I want to cover here. The last big topic I want to cover here is marketing. I am so bad. I still, even though I know I do it, I think I take a very field of dreams approach to marketing. Like, well, I've wrote this book and now people will find it because it exists. <laughs> Which is, uh, from what I understand, very bad. That's very bad. <laughs> it's, it is, let's just say it's a common hallucination. Yeah. <laughs> Where's all the audience? This is yeah. great. I wrote no, this no, book no, in a no, cave no, for like six no. months, right? Yeah. <laughs> it really is like the biggest mistake people make. They put all of their energy into writing, they get all exhausted, and then they give up. And in every writing process, especially with traditional publishers, but the same goes with hybrid publishers and even self-publishing, there is a time period when you have turned in the manuscript, and then you have two or four or six months that you're waiting before the actual book comes out while they're, you know, producing pages and getting it printed and so on. And you're like, ah, time to relax. No, time to plan. Time to plan your promotion. So that is the time period when you do that. And I got like a five-step thing here that I, I say is the keys that you need to think about book promotion. And the uh, initialism for this is P-Q-R-S-T. P is positioning. What is the, what type of book is it and what's the audience, right? This is a how-to book for podcasters. Or this is a self-help book for people with imposter syndrome. That's the positioning. The question is, uh, the cue is a question, which is what problem are you going to solve? I'm going to solve the problem of question is, how do I be more productive as a podcaster? Mm -hmm. Or the question is, how do I feel stronger and more confident? Those are the two things to, to start with. And then R, S, and T are the tools that you use to get the word out. R is reach. 
How are you going to find, get this word out to as many people as possible, connect up with podcasters or, you know, get book reviewers or get your friend to write about it who has a million Twitter followers or, you know, write about something in the news, do a contributed article on a website. So that's reach. Spread is how will you get that to resonate? Are you going to have a posse of people who who share things about the book? What are you going to give them to share? You know, videos, you know, audio segments, infographics. T is timing. And that is about the question of how can you get all of this marketing activity, all this promotional activity to happen in the time period just before and just after the book launches? Because your prospect, your person who wants to, you want to hear about the book, they'll be like, oh, I heard about that on uh, the How I Built It podcast. And then they forget. And then they say, oh, look, there's a webinar going on about that. Oh, that looks interesting. And then they forget. And then they say, oh, look, there's a review of this in this you know, website that I heard about. Man, I keep hearing about this thing. It must be the next thing. I'm going to need to buy it. And you have to hit them over and over again. And if those same marketing activities happened over a period of eight months, it wouldn't work. If it happens over a period of three weeks, they're like, oh, this is like the hot new thing. I got to get it. And then it it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It actually becomes the hot new thing. That's great. It's almost like how like a news cycle is two weeks, right? Like you, big story breaks on the first and then by the 15th, everyone's kind of forgotten about it and moved on. Right. But you, you need to stay connected. It's interesting yeah. that you bring up the news stories because one of my favorite techniques, which comes from the author David Meerman Scott, is called newsjacking. Mm, and this yeah. is... You're like, oh, here's a uh, piece about Elizabeth Holmes going to jail. Well, I think that this is the perfect time for me to talk about her, the difference between her arrogance and what it takes to be really confident. Mm. So if you can, yeah. you can hook yourself onto a news story and be like, okay, here's how my unique perspective applies to you know, Trump getting indicted or, right. or you know, the, the Brexit happening or whatever right. it happens to be, yeah. you know, and the thing comes out and it says podcasting has increased by 40% in the last year. Okay, I have something to say about that. Right. These are ways for you to become part of the story and get more visibility. Love that. And as a little, uh, this is, I mean, it's not proof, it's anecdote because yeah. it's just me, but the last book I bought, Forget the Funnels, this exact thing happened. Somebody mentioned it on a podcast I was listening to. I saw a friend tweet about it. I saw another friend tweet about it. Someone wrote about it on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. I must have seen the book mentioned like once a day for five days. And I'm like, yeah, I should get this book. It sounds like I need it. Yep. Concept, anecdotal proof. Yep. Love it. Gosh, Josh, this has been so great. I want to end with this. I suspect we already covered it somewhere here, but just for repetition's sake. If someone wants to start writing a book today, what is the first two steps they need to take? I'd say two things. First of all, you need to test your idea out. So this is where you talk to other people about it. I think my idea is this. And that process of developing the idea will get it to that point where it is differentiated, where it is new and not just big and right. And the second thing is to start collecting stories. Because that really, when I work with people on books, I'm like, okay, what case studies do you have? And they're like, I have three. And you're like, okay, you have 45,000 words to put in here. Mm -hmm. Three stories is not going to do the job for you. 
So you should be like squirreling those things away in a file. So now it's like, okay, these are the people I'm going to interview. These are the stories that I'm going to take that were already public out there. You know, a book that's got 20 user stories in it is much easier to read and much more believable than one that has three. Gotcha. So is there like a convention you think? Should it be like one per chapter, two per chapter, or one per concept or proof point? I would say you should have at least one per chapter. And I made what in retrospect was probably insane decision in my book. There are 24 chapters in this book. There are short chapters. They're about things like book covers and editing and so on. Yeah. But I decided that there would be an, a story about an author that led every chapter. Wow. And as a result, it's easy to read and you're like, oh, I don't want to get stuck in the trap that Fotini was in. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm an employee working for a company. I need to find out how Rashad managed to finesse that, the IP elements of that. Oh, this is what happened when Josh first saw the book cover of the book that, was, that sold 150,000 copies. He hated it. What an interesting story. How did, how did that turn from hate to love? So these things make it come alive. And yes, I think it would be great to have at least one case study for each chapter. Gotcha. And one last clarifying thing on yeah. this. I was going to ask this, and then you said Josh, and I wasn't sure if you were referring to yourself yeah. in the third person. Yeah. Should you have stories about yourself in the book, or, or is it more? does it give you more credibility to have stories about other people? I think... Unless the book is a memoir, it shouldn't mostly be stories about yourself. So I would say 80 or 90% of the story should be about other people. Because otherwise it becomes, you can be like me and do what I did. And people are like, well, who the hell are you? And why should I believe you? Right. But you inevitably have personal experience. So, I mean, there's not that many people who've written a book that that sold 150,000 copies. So I'm like, okay, I can talk about this. Mm -hmm. But... Phil M. Jones, the guy who wrote exactly what to say, his book has sold a million copies. So it's much better for me also to have a story about him because now it's like, oh, wait a minute, he's talking about sales and Josh is talking about social media. These are two completely different books I can learn from both of those things. Awesome. Um, If all most of your stories are about you, then get out in the world and find some more stories. (laughs) Yeah, that's really the the thing, right? Like you gotta when you're building something new, you gotta talk to customers. When you're writing a book, you need case studies. You can't do anything in a vacuum, right? Because like you said, I see these tweets from people and it's like, hey, you wanna be like me? Do these things. And I'm like, I don't know. There's probably a lot of other things that you did or don't have like children that allow you to work for like 15 hours a day uninterrupted or whatever. It's really important because if you start from the perspective of everybody else is like me, you will fail. Right. Yeah. You have an audience of one. <laughs> you want to have some, you know, want to write for men and women. You want to have some people of color in there. You want to have people who are famous and people who nobody's ever heard of. You want to have somebody from the financial services industry and somebody from manufacturing and somebody from media. And it's that diversity that makes people say, all right, with all these different people are solving the same problem the same way, then maybe I need to, Mm. then maybe it's applicable for me. Love that. Josh, this has been great. If people want to learn more about you, where can they find you? Well, the simplest thing to do is to come to my blog, burnoff.com. That's B-E-R-N-O-F-F.com. And I actually publish a blog post every weekday. So constant stuff, insights here about writing and about, about books. If they want to get access to the book, it's called Build a Better Business Book. You can search that on Amazon or go to my 
publisher, which is Amplify Publishing Group, and get a copy of the book there. I'm at Jay Burnoff on Twitter, which I'm using less and less, but you can also follow me on LinkedIn, which seems to be where the more interesting stuff is happening now. Awesome. I will link to everything just mentioned here and a bunch of other stuff we talked about in the show notes over at howibuilt.it slash 321. That's 321. And if you want to learn a little bit about ghostwriting, become a member. You can do that over at howibuilt.it slash 321 as well. Josh, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. I'm glad I got the chance to talk to you. Agreed. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks to our sponsors. Thank you for listening. And until next time, get out there and build something. 